Well, Father, uh, we pray that we would come back to the heart of worship. As that song says, you're looking into our hearts. That's actually scary. Lord, we pray that you would show us our hearts this morning. And uh, as we open up your holy word, this is you speaking to us. I pray, Father, that you would help me to explain the text that we're in and that you would glorify yourself through your word. I pray that you give us all ears to hear and eyes to see what your word is saying to us as a church, as believers. Help us not to push away the convictions of the Holy Spirit, but to receive that, to allow the word to cut uh, in certain places in our souls for the purpose of healing. Lord, our purpose is and only to glorify you in our lives and in this church. That's why we're here. We want to hear from you. So I pray that you would hide the messenger and that your words would proceed out of my mouth into our ears, into the soil of our hearts, ultimately producing fruit that would bring you honor. So help us, Holy Spirit, now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 4. And for three weeks, we're going to be looking in this chapter, verses 1 through 12, and James writing to them, is caution against worldliness. Caution against worldliness. We have a tendency to constantly go back into the world and the things of the world, and James is warning us about this. A little overview on the person James. Most of you probably know he is a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's amazing how he opens up this letter in James chapter 1. He says that James, a servant... Of God, of course, that's a Greek word doulos, which means slave, a slave of God. James was an unbeliever. He didn't believe in his brother growing up. Matter of fact, he didn't believe until Jesus was resurrected and showed himself personally to James and to the other disciples. And after that, James' life was never the same. He saw the, ris- or the risen Lord. And you would think James here, you know, opening this letter, he could have probably you know, taking some pride in it and saying, you know, I'm James, uh, the brother of God, or or born from the sacred womb of Mary, but he doesn't do that. He's content with slave, servant of God. James was also called James the Just. After he was converted, people said that he would constantly enter the temple alone and was found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for himself and for his people. He prayed so much on his knees that they said that his knees grew hard like camels because of his constant worship to God. Here was an unbeliever converted, and now he is a a man of piety, a, a man of worship, and constantly praying in the temple for his people. The recipient of these books were Jewish believers who had been dispersed due to persecution under Herod Agrippa I. This letter was not written to a specific church like to the Philippians or Ephesians, but it was written to the church in general. James is addressing people here who are supposed to know the rudiments of Christianity, and his aim is to set forth a life lived according to God's law. That's his whole purpose here. And James, when he writes... And when he wrote this letter, he wrote with extreme passion. 
His passion was for his readers to uncompromisingly be obedient to the word of God. That's what James' goal is, is that they would live a life obedient to the scriptures. His dominant theme throughout this whole book is that faith that is real works practically in one's life. If you claim to have faith in God and believe in God, it will be backed up by works showing that you are. That's what his theme is. It's mainly practical. If you're looking uh, for a book of theology, this might not be your book. This is a practical uh, book, a practical letter, teaching people how to live, reminding us, and it's good. I'm all for theology and sound doctrine, but it's also good to be reminded of how we put these things into practice. And this is James' goal. He's certainly direct and hard-hitting, On the theology here, one commentator wrote that this should be titled James, the in-your-face epistle. See, his goal was not to make people happy, but to make them holy. He was blunt, right to it. When I read this, I'm thinking about a baseball coach that I had growing up, and he was not the nicest guy. He had a difficult time saying nice things to us. But one of the other coaches, who was a more nicer guy and pleasant and spoke very easy, would come around and say, don't listen to how he says it, but just listen to what he says because he's knowledgeable. He just has difficulty, has passion. He kind of sounds mean and mad and angry. Well, the same thing here with James. When you read that, you, could, you can see his like harshness. He's like, like angry. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you listen to what he says, your life will be changed over the next three weeks as we look into this chapter. James is a do this and do that kind of book. E.J. Goodspeed called James just a handful of pearls dropped one by one into the hearer's mind. And throughout the books, he's constantly given the believers test about their assurance and about their faith. And in chapter 4, the test is... Do you still love the world? Are you still worldly? Are you still attached to the world? So this morning, in the next two weeks, we're going to be looking into this chapter. And this morning, we're going to look, where do conflicts come from? There was conflicts between the believers. Next week, we're going to look on how to resolve conflicts according to the word of God. And then the final week, we're going to look at who are you to judge? Okay? So that's just a kind of overview. So if you're at James chapter 4, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And we're actually going to start in James chapter 3 verse 13 and read through James 4 verse 12. The word of God reads as followed. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So as you can see here, there are some pretty hard words. Wretched, mourn, weep. Laughter turn to mourning. Humble yourselves. Straight to the point. Story reads as followed. A guy was marooned on a deserted island. When a ship came to his rescue, the captain learned that the man had lived alone on this island for five years. He noticed three huts. So he asked the man about them. The man pointed to one and said that he lived there. He pointed to the second hut and said that's where he went to church. The, cap, the other captain says, well, what about this third hut? And the captain, uh, the captain asked, what about this third hut? And the man replied, that's where I used to go to church. And it's kind of cute, but the, the fact is that people are leaving church, churches all over the world because of conflict, because they can't get along, not for godly reasons. They're leaving the church because they have offense. They have selfish desires and they're not being fulfilled. So therefore they leave the church. And they leave the next church. And they're trying to find a church where they can have their desires pleased. Conflicts in church. And we all desire relationships that live in harmony. But the fact is in our churches, in our marriages, in our children, in our schools, in our world and in our nation, we have conflicts. Nation are fighting against nation. We're fighting in our country here today. Republicans against Democrats. Red Sox fans and Yankee fans, conflicts, arguments that aren't being settled. And this is nothing new in the church. A lot of us think that, boy, if we could just be a part of the first church, how nice it would have been and how pleasant it would have been to be in that unity. But the Corinthian church was divided into factions. Some were for Paul, some were for Apollos, and others were for uh, Cephas. The Philippian church had two women who couldn't get along, and their names were actually mentioned in Scripture. The Galatian church were biting and devouring each other. And the Ephesian church was having problems with unity and loving one another. Conflicts in the church. And this is what James is addressing here this morning. Where do they come from? The World Trade Center took six years to build And in 90 minutes, it came tumbling down. 
Just quick 90 minutes and it was done. Same with churches. It takes years to build. And if we're not careful, within a month or so, it could be torn down and closed, all because of quarreling and complaining. And the reason for me wanting to to teach this is because I love our church. I love this church. And it's not just the elder's job to protect this church. Outside is Satan wanting to get in to our church. And he does this through relationships, trying to get somebody offended, trying to get division here, trying to get somebody to talk about that other person and spread gossip. It's your job as well as ours to keep this place safe, to deal with our conflicts in a godly way and to settle them, not to have quarreling and backbiting. Now, the people that James was writing here in chapter 4, they were experiencing conflict inside the church. And James writes in in chapter 3, verse 14, if you look at that with me, he says in chapter 3, verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And the Greek conditional clause here in that verse is that this is true of these people. They had bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in their hearts. They had a goal for their pleasure. And because they didn't get what they want, they started to fight and quarrel with each other. And James is addressing this as the leader of the church. He's not just talking about uh, the, t- the ones that want to be teachers, because in James chapter 3, he talks about not many of you should be teachers. He's not talking about the teachers here, but he's talking about the church in general, the whole community here. So he starts off chapter 3 in verse 13, and he asks them, and he asks us this morning, a question. And here's the question. Who is wise and understanding among you? James asked the people, if you think that you have special understanding and wisdom from God and, and spiritual matters, I want you to step forward so I can analyze it, so I can scrutinize it. If you claim to have this wisdom, Step forward. And as they begin to step forward, James uh, starts to scrutinize them. He does, and he doesn't examine their claim of how much theology they know or how many Greek verbs they can interpret or understand, but he, he examines them in practical terms. In practical terms. Look at verse 13 again. Who was wise and understanding among you? Watch this. By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the, in the meekness of wisdom. And remember, the whole theme of this, of this book is James chapter 2, verse 17, which reads, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we know that James is not saying that works saves. He's not saying this here. He is basically saying that if you claim to have faith, there's going to be evidence of that faith. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be evidence in your lifestyle that backs up your faith. And if you have spiritual wisdom and understanding, do it in the meekness of your life. Let's see that. So James says here two things in chapter 3, verse uh, 13. That true wisdom will always produce good works. Number two, true wisdom will always produce humility. It will always produce good works, and it will always produce humilities. And the result of false wisdom, of course, 
which is worldliness, is in verse 14 of chapter 13. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's false wisdom. Bitter jealousy and envy. So now, having declared at the end of chapter 13 and verse 18, he says this, a, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He now moves on into chapter 4, and he asks this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It says wars. Wars, that sounds pretty, pretty bad, doesn't it? Wars in church. The goal of a war is to kill and destroy. And this is what people do in churches. They try to destroy people. That's worldliness. That's demonic. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Ryan read this morning, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you, and James' point here is that if you do not deal with your conflicts immediately and godly, they will escalate into all-out wars. And some of us can testify to that here this morning. You've been there. James chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, if you turn back there real quick. Listen to this. If we don't deal with our conflicts, uh, like I said, a serious war will start out. And that war is usually by our words. A war of words. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's what happens when we don't deal with our conflicts immediately. And we just let them sit in us and boil over and boil over and our words start coming out and they start setting the whole place on fire. Let's always remember the words and teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, which reads as follows. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Which one do you want? You want to be justified by your words, or you want to be condemned by your words, but you will give an account for every careless word that proceeds out of your mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but that brings me fear. That, that makes me want to pray and say, God, set a guard over my mouth and make sure that I only say things that are building up and encouraging but when that thing sparks in us and it sets it ablaze, that mouth just takes off and it just starts killing people left and right. We see it in marriages. The divorce rate is 40, 50% today. Arguments, quarreling, conflicts. So James asks the question, what causes these quarrels and what causes the fights among you? And he gives us the answer to it in verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions or pleasures, some of your translations may say pleasures, are at war within you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's our answer. You don't have to look far to find the answer. What causes quarrels and fightings? 
It's within you, and it's called selfishness. It's called self. And when you think about self, you're thinking of worldliness. It's all about me. I don't care about anyone else. Two people get in a conflict. They hold their ground. They're not going to budge. They start accusing the other person of the problem. And before you know it, an all-out war is taking place. But James takes us right here back to the root cause. And the root cause is the selfishness that is within us. Listen to Paul's writing to the church at the Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people in the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Why? And even now you're not ready for it, for you're still of the flesh, for uh, there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Are you not worldly? You've got strife and selfish ambition in you. I'm desiring to teach you the the meat of the word, but I can only feed you milk because you're fleshly. You don't understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Talking to Christians here, the believers. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits as all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So the whole, the whole context of that scripture right there is, you've got a conflict going on, and neither one of you are going to budge. Neither one of you are going to say, you know what, just forget about it. You have your way. No problem. We're going to take this to the next thing and to the next extreme and the next extreme. And you go to courts uh, who, who basically aren't even Christians and, and do your dispute right there. And Paul says, I do this to your shame. That's shameful. I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. And one thing I hear in marriage counseling nonstop is people blaming one another. It's his fault. It's, it's her fault. This is what he's doing. This is what she's doing. And you kind of say, okay, you know, stop. I, let's just talk about you. Let's not talk about the other person. And that stops for a little bit, and then it starts right back up of what they did. If you're in any conflict this morning here, could it be the shocking possibility that you are living for yourself, that you're being selfish which is the essence of worldliness. Remember, the whole, the whole chapter title here is warning against worldliness. The main enemy is not the other person. You have to understand that. The main enemy is your own sinful selfishness. That's the enemy. And if you do not defeat that, it will destroy you. Selfishness will destroy you, it will destroy your marriage, and it will destroy your church. And we've got to protect against that. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? Your pleasures are at war within you. It's the sin that remains in us. That is the enemy. Because we're still in this body, we still have this sinful nature. We still have this selfishness. 
But we have to do an all-out war against this. This can't be something that is taken lightly. You must destroy this, otherwise it's going to destroy you and your relationships. RVG Tasker writes in his commentary on this verse in James, he says, listen, I quote, What he asserts is that the human personality has, as it were, been invaded by an alien army which is always campaigning within it. The verb wage war implies that these pleasures are permanently on active service. And the expression in your members means that there is no part of the human frame which does not afford them a battleground. Human nature is indeed in the grip of an overwhelming army of occupation. End quote. So the point is, unless you recognize the magnitude of this battle and the frightening fact that your enemy is not overseas or across the country, but that your enemy is in with, within you, you must deal with it and not take it lightly. I don't know if any of you have uh, heard MacArthur's teaching on how to deal with the remaining sin that's in you, but he uses 1 Samuel uh, to describe that. And I want to read this real quick to you. Turn to 1 Sam- uh, Samuel chapter 15. We we'll are just for a second here. 1 Samuel chapter 15. He, through Samuel the prophet, God commands Saul, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, he says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, children and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God's basically saying, I want you to go and destroy every single thing that lives in there, even children. You got that, Saul? Yes, sir. Now, in verse, in verse 8, watch this. He took Agag, the king of the Amicalites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. He was told to kill everything, and he doesn't kill everything. He spares the leader, Agag. And in verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So it's better to obey than to make sacrifices. Now watch this in verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amicalites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past, which means, you know what, you, 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 we had our war and everything's cool now. You've killed a bunch of people. Let's just have peace here. Agag, like MacArthur said, is representing the remaining sin that's in us. If everything's okay. Just relax. Watch Samuel here. In verse 33, Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among the women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's how you deal with selfishness that remains in you. If you do not deal with this in that way, it will destroy you. It's an all-out war. You need to hack your selfishness in pieces and not let it live. Amen? Amen? James calls this enemy your passions. 
Another word for passions is pleasures. It's the Greek word hedon, which is hedonism. We get the word hedonism, which means the pursuit of or devotions to pleasures. The enemy will constantly lie to you and tell you that if you follow me, that you will have pleasures and enjoy it. That's what sin does. It brings pleasure. That's what he told Eve. That's what he tried to tempt Jesus with in the wilderness. You're hungry, right? Feed yourself. Look at that. Turn those stones to bread. He goes after the pleasures. And if you get these pleasures, you will be fine. You will enjoy them. That's the temptation. John Piper wrote, um, The Bible is not against us having pleasure. Rather, it is against us finding pleasures in the wrong things or in the wrong ways. James emphasizes four times, four times in these verses that yielding to your sinful pleasures are not going to get you what you thought it would. Look at this. What causes, uh, um, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder. You covet. You cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Because you do not ask, you ask and you do not receive. So you can see that pleasures are not going to satisfy you. The bottom line is seeking your own way is always going to be you do not have. That's what it's going to end up being. You seek your selfish desires, you're always going to be I do not have. So then he says in verse 2, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Most, most commentary, they, they, they argue about this, this point here. Do they, does he really mean literally murder? Most commentaries believe that it really didn't mean murder. It meant that what Jesus was talking about on the Sermon on the Mount, which meant that if you are angry with your brother, then you have murdered him in God's sight. If you are angry with a brother, it is as if you murdered him in God's sight. That's pretty serious. Murder. You've never killed anyone physically, but in your heart you have. Because you've been angry, and you don't deal with that anger. And we don't want to miss the implications here. That murder usually begins with what? Unchecked anger. I've been in situations where the anger's hit me, and I didn't deal with it. And before I know it, I've stepped back and gone, wow, what just happened? How how did this take place? How did these words come out? How did these physical acts come out? That's how quick it is. That adrenaline sits, and before you know it, bam. And we don't want to miss that. If you don't deal with this unchecked anger, it could lead into an all-out murder. Even though you may think I would never murder someone, if you don't deal with that, it could happen. Remember James chapter 1, verse 20, he says that the anger of man does not produce the what? The righteousness of God. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We could stop right here and just teach the whole time on prayer. James simply says, you do not have because you do not ask. Your selfish desires, your your selfish motives, you don't have these things because you simply just don't ask God. The reason why we don't have help from heaven is because we don't ask for it. 
And when we're in conflict and, and when we're in fighting and arguments with other people, instead of praying and asking God how to help this, we usually go to our friends. We usually go to our girlfriend or our boyfriend or, or a counselor or anybody but God. And we tell them the problem just so that they would feel sorry and take our side. But James chapter 1, verse 5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, if you lack understanding of what's going on in your situation, let him what? Ask God. Just ask God. Who gives to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The Holy Spirit didn't say, if you lack wisdom, go talk to your friend. Which friends are fine? I'm, I'm all for godly counsel. And our counsel should be right back to the word of God. Right, friends? When someone comes to you about a marriage uh, conflict or something like that, we want to go right to the word of God. But we don't have because we simply just don't ask God. Let me ask you a question here. Remember Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 7? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Do you believe that? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, and knock, and the door will be opened to you. This is right from the lips of Jesus to the believer. You ask. But James chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 6 says, But let him ask in what? Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is a picture of of a person having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. He's double-minded. He's double-souled. He lives for the world and he lives for God. He's right in the middle and he's just constantly going forth and back and forth. And he's double-minded. For that person must must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In Scripture, asking in faith always means one of two things. Either the believing, uh, either believing God will do what he has promised, or if he has not promised it, then believing that he can do what the person requesting is asking. Now, we're not talking here about word of faith and proclaiming it and telling God what to do here. But if you, do not have, if you do not have, could it be that you maybe do not ask? Do you not think God can do that? According to Ephesians chapter 3, it says he can do exceedingly above all we can ever what? Ask or think? He's God, creator of everything. In Matthew chapter 7, he, he said to seek, which means to strive after. Strive after. Remember when you used to play hide and go seek? close your eyes and people would go hide in the dark and then you you turn around you'd go out and try to find them and most of the time they would just like come out and then they make you chase them but you ever played hide and go seek where they just remain hidden and you've got to look and you're constantly looking and you're getting weary and you're like oh man this is taking long and you're looking and looking for them and then what you give up all right i quit come on out i can't find you that's how we pray sometimes Because God doesn't answer our prayer like that or whatever the conflict is or whatever the situation is, we start out in prayer, we start out good praying, but then we grow weary because it's not answered in our time frames. And I'm guilty of it. We've got to learn to persevere. 
We've got to learn to persevere in our trials and our conflicts and whatever's going on and pray and ask God, give me wisdom. What's going on? What's this for? What's this about? What must I learn? How can I grow in holiness? That's what we should do. And the Bible says that when we do that in humility, God will answer us. You ask and it will be given to you. So the focus of the person who does not pray is always towards self, not God. Why don't you pray? Who needs God, right? I'll just handle this myself. That's worldliness. That's the wisdom of the world. That's bitter jealousy and envy. Maybe one of the reasons we fail to pray in our quarrels and in our conflicts is because it's hard to pray when you're arguing with somebody. You ever tried that? You ever tried to pray to God and ask your blessings upon yourself or or your spouse or another person when you're at odds with them and you're banging heads? It's almost impossible. You just you just shut up. You just you just don't even pray. You try to figure it out. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us husbands that if we don't dwell with our wives in an understanding way, guess what? Our prayers are hindered. Now, I don't know about you, husbands, but I can't afford to have my prayers hindered. I need answers. I need wisdom. I've got a lot of stuff going on. So therefore, I must live with my wife in an understanding way. If we've got a conflict, we settle it. We deal with it in a godly way, quickly. And then God hears our prayers. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Maybe that's another reason why we don't pray, because we know we have knowing sin in our lives. And we haven't dealt with it. And we know the Holy Spirit's been tugging at that sin, and we just haven't budged with it. And therefore, we just shut up and we don't pray. Isaiah chapter 59, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear you. Maybe that's a reason why we don't pray. We've got anger in our heart. We have unconfessed sin in our hearts. And because of that, it's hidden God from us and he doesn't hear us. Well, how do we make him hear us? Reconcile. Reconcile. Matthew chapter 5. Like we're going to partake in the Lord's table here real soon. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. So if you... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go where? First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what's God more concerned about? Your offering or you living in unity with a brother? According to this scripture, it's living in unity with a brother. That means if we harbor anger in our hearts and bitterness in our hearts towards someone, and we're going to partake this morning at the Lord's table, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. And you better be very careful of that. Leave your offering at the altar, go to the brethren, and work it out. Work it out. Make amends. And then come back and God freely accepts your sacrifice at the altar. 
That's what we're to do. He says here that you desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And now you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Remember, the whole title of this, these three verses, these quarrelings and fightings, was because they were selfish, and these pleasures and these passions are, are at war within them, and they're not getting their way, therefore they start conflicts, and they're not going to budge. So therefore, you just don't even pray at all, but when you do pray, you pray wrongly so that you can spend it on yourself. All about me. John Piper said that James has in mind here a picture of people who use prayer to try to get from God something they desire more than God. Let me, let, let me just tell you something real quick. This world has many pleasures. And there's nothing wrong with you having pleasures. There's nothing wrong with us asking for things. Just don't let them have you. But we still get fooled thinking that that's going to bring us more pleasure than God himself. And we end up constantly falling for that trap. There's no one who will satisfy the longings of your heart except Jesus. None. Another marriage is not going to work. Another relationship is not going to work. Another job's not going to work. A bigger house. More money. It's Christ. It's Christ that's truly going to satisfy the longing and the desires of your heart. But yet we try to fill it with worldly things. And when we pray and ask God, we pray for those things more than we pray for him. Fill me with this, not you. It's kind of like the, uh, the, the prodigal son. Give me my inheritance. Now see you, Dad. It's kind of like asking God, hey, I want this. Now when he gives it to you, see you later. And you go away to a far land and spend it on your pleasures. And then we just keep coming back for more. It's kind of like we rub God like a genie and tell him what we want. We don't want to commune with him. We don't want to have intimacy with him. We don't want to weep before him and enjoy, enjoy the vastness of his glory and presence. I want what you can give me. A lot of times that's how we are in relationships too. I want what you can give me, what you can make me. It's all about what? Self. And this must be destroyed. They're not searching for God. They're searching for all the things that God gives them. Now James, tell, he doesn't tell us what they don't have. We don't know what it is, but according to this context, which it is the teachers up front here in chapter three, that um, it's a kind of wisdom that will enable them to gain recognitions as leaders in the community. They wanted to have the place of authority. They wanted to be recognized as a leader, and they didn't have that. And all they wanted it for is so people could look at them and say, well, how great you are. And you have a lot of people sitting in churches sitting there going, you know, I could preach better than him. I should be up there. Nonstop in all churches. I've seen it happen constantly. I'm better than that person. I'm better than this person. I wish I had that. And you pray and you start asking God for that and you're asking wrongly. This is nothing I asked for. Be content with what God has given you in your gift and use it for the church. This morning when I came in, I saw the, the lady back there in the kitchen cutting up all the food and stuff like that. That brings glory to God. Not just this. We're equal. The people in there right now watching the little babies. We're all one. There's no higher level here. We're all one. Be content. 
with the gifts and talents that God has given you. Jesus clearly taught, I'm going to close here. Jesus clearly taught that prayer is not to get our will done on earth, but to get God's will done. That's why we're here. That's why we're coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's not about me. It's about you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not mine. Not my will. Prayer is not so that we can use God. It's so that God can use us. That's the type of praying we should have. What do you want me to do today, Lord? Lord, in, my, in this situation, in this conflict, in this argument, what is it? What is it that I'm not seeing? Help me look within. Don't ever go to God without uh, telling him about somebody else. Always keep it within your own court. Lord, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I quarreling about this? Where did this selfishness come from? When you ask for wisdom like that and humility and meekness, God will give you that. He will show you it. It's dependence upon God. I need you. I can't do this without you. I can't love my wife without you. I can't love my children without you. I can't do, my, I can't do anything without you. Apart from you, James 15, I can do what? Nothing. I can't do a darn thing. I need you. Help me to live at peace with people. Help me to understand them and help me to see the selfish motives and desires I have and help me to kill it. And when you do that, we will shut the door to Satan and he will not get in here, but he wants to. Don't let that happen. Ask God to be glorified in your relationships. Ask God that you would be glorified and honored in my relationship. And his answer will always be yes and amen. I will do that. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Holy Father, Lord, as we sung the song this morning, Amazing Love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Selfish, bitter, angry, polluted, sinful. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would be more like you. Lord, we all have different personalities. We all come different backgrounds. We all have different beliefs. But you have called us out of the world and you have placed us in the church like living stones, one next to each other. Father, I'm asking that you would please help us to get along. Help us to forgive and forgive quickly. Help us to see that we're sinful and selfish to the core. And that does not bring you glory and honor. Lord, I know that your desire is so that we would show the unbelieving world how wonderful you are. But what kind of testimony is that if we're arguing and quarreling and going back and backbiting each other? That doesn't show them how wonderful you are. Lord, help us to understand that we are a living epistle read amongst all men. That our marriages should glorify you. Not that we shouldn't be in any conflicts. We're, we're sinful, but to work them out. 
to give you praise and honor and glory. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would help us, that you would protect Pacific Hope from this happening. Lord, we cherish this church. We love our pastor, and I know that he loves us, protects us, and his desire is that we would be one as your desire, Jesus, is. Help us to look deep within us, to see if we have any selfish ambition and quarrels, not to blame the other person, but to know that the enemy is within us and it is our selfishness, which, by the way, is a fruit of the flesh. Rid it from us, God. And Father, as we now move to the partaking of the bread and the cup, I pray that we would examine our hearts right now. That we would see if there is a brother who has anything against us that we have not reconciled with yet. That we would leave our gift at the altar and go make it right with him before we come back. It is just that important. Lord, may we partake this morning with humility, meekness, to see truly the risen Lord, high and lifted up, far above all principalities and powers. Thank you for the blood of the lamb. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We're nothing without you, Jesus. Help us, we pray, in your name, amen.